Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about how Trump managed to make the Middle East even more chaotic, and how he's continued our country's long tradition of screwing over our allies as soon as they become inconvenient. Clips today come from Democracy Now!, The Real News, Tisky Sour, The Michael Brooks Show, and Intercepted. Turkey has launched an aerial and ground assault on northern Syria, targeting Kurdish-controlled areas. The offensive began Wednesday, just days after President Trump ordered U.S. troops to fall back from their positions on the Turkish-Syrian border. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights reports at least 16 Kurds have been killed so far. Turkey is claiming the death toll is far higher. Some of the heaviest fighting has been in the Syrian town of Tel Abyad. Turkish jets and artillery have reportedly hit at least 81 targets east of the Euphrates River. The Trump administration has faced widespread criticism from both Republican and Democratic lawmakers for abandoning the stateless Kurds who'd helped the U.S. fight ISIS. Turkey is claiming the assault is needed to establish a, quote, safe zone in northern Syria, where Turkey could relocate Syrian refugees who fled over the past eight years of fighting. But the Kurds see the offensive as part of a decades-long attack by Turkey to crush their attempts at greater autonomy. Fear is also growing that the Turkish assault could lead to the mass release of ISIS fighters. Up until now, the Kurds have been responsible for holding over 10,000 ISIS fighters and their families in detention. While President Trump has claimed Turkey will take control of the makeshift jails, there's growing concern many former ISIS fighters will be able to escape during the Turkish assault. At least one Kurdish prison has already been shelled. The New York Times is reporting the U.S. military has moved as many as several dozen Islamic State prisoners to more secure locations. This includes two British members of ISIS who are accused of beheading Western hostages, including the journalist James Foley and Stephen Satloff. The Turkey assault is facing international condemnation. The U.N. Security Council is expected to meet later today. The European Union has warned Turkey's hostilities would, quote, further undermine the stability of the whole region. Earlier today, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has threatened to send millions of Syrian refugees to Europe if Turkey's assault is criticized. Hey, hey European Union, pull yourself together. I say it again. If you try to label this operation as an invasion, it's very simple. We will open the gates and send 3.6 million refugees your way. On Wednesday, President Trump described Turkey's assault as a bad idea, but defended his decision to shift U.S. troops away from the Syrian-Turkish border. Here in New York, protesters demonstrated on Wednesday in front of the offices of Democratic Senators Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Gillibrand in New York City, demanding the U.S. defend the Kurdish autonomous region known as Rojava. This is Oslem Gönner, an assistant professor of sociology and anthropology at CUNY, the City University of New York. Kurds have lost thousands, tens of thousands of lives, their homes, their lands, their agricultural production, so all their livelihood in order to defeat ISIS so that European and U.S. citizens are comfortable in their homes. And now they're once again paying with their lives for having protected our lives. 
wrote in a very, very powerful article today. They didn't help us in the Second World War. They didn't help us with Normandy, as an example. They mentioned names of different battles. They were there, but they're there to help us with their land. And that's a different thing. In addition to that, we, we, tr we have spent tremendous amounts of money uh, on helping the Kurds in terms of ammunition, in terms of weapons, in terms of money, in terms of pay. These are, this is like uh, Israel and the Palestinians, okay? There's only one difference. Maybe the hatred's even greater. Is that possible? Maybe not. This is the voice of overt imperialism. And I'm Mark Steiner here for the Real News Network. That was the voice of overt imperialism we just heard. It was almost untenable to hear what the President of the United States just said. It's like the man sitting next to you on a bar stool who knows nothing about anything he's talking about but wants to talk about it anyway. It's a madman stirring the madness of the Middle East pot. This is a direct lineage in many ways to Bush's war in Iraq, to Obama Clinton's war in Libya, to what we're facing today in Syria. And once again, the Kurds are being deserted by their seeming allies. For a hundred years, the Kurds have been fighting for national independence. And it's a very complex issue given the world we live in today, where the Kurds are allied with Israel and the U.S., yet they are on the left. So today, we'll try to parse out this complex moment and the history that made it with Dr. Corey Peterson-Smith, who's a Middle East Research Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. And Corey, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Good to be here. This is really complex. Well, let's just start with what you just saw, what we just saw. I mean, so clearly what happened here, Donald Trump read an article in a right-wing press and created that as historic fact about the Kurds not helping the United States and the Western allies in Normandy. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Good question. I think there's, there's two things in, from that clip. The first is what he ended on, which is this is, you know, this is like Israel and the Palestinians, except the hatred is greater. And that's part of, I mean, there's so little conversation uh, in the U.S. about these entanglements that the U.S. is involved in the Middle East. And when there is, as right now, given what Trump uh, decided to do this past Sunday, these are talked about in terms of these intractable ethnic conflicts that are rooted in hatred, as opposed to decisions and power in control of land and oppression, which is what this is actually about. And really, the United States has uh, shares quite a lot of the blame for the nightmare that Kurds are, are facing today. So this isn't just about hatred. This is about decisions that are made, in particular decisions that are made by powerful forces like the U.S. The piece about Normandy is really, um, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's so, on one hand, it's so out of left field. But on the other hand, what he's saying is, you're only deserving of uh, something depending on your loyalty to the United States, as, as though the, the criterion for the Kurds not being delivered to their brutal uh, oppressor, the Turkish government, is their loyalty to the United States. And in that regard, you know, Trump is actually not the only one. The, the critics of Trump who are within the U.S. establishment, people like Nikki, former Ambassador Nikki Haley has spoken up. Uh, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham have spoken against Trump's decision to move troops away from the Turkish border. Um, and of course, folks, uh, Democrats like Hillary Clinton as well, what they have said, they frame this in terms of, look, the Kurds are so loyal to us. How could we do this? And it's like, well, well, actually, the question really shouldn't be about the Kurds' loyalty to the United States. That's not what uh, their right to exist depends on. 
That's true. And I think when you look at the present political situation, clearly when you look at what the destabilization of the Middle East caused primarily by our governments, whether it's Libya or whether it's Iraq and what's happened now in Syria and other parts, that, 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 that when, you, when, you, when you look at that, this is part of that destabilization. And if it wasn't for the Kurdish armies, especially the ones in Syria that fought ISIS, ISIS may never have been defeated the way they've been defeated in that part of, of northern Syria and, and uh, western Iraq. And I, th- you know, and I think people, A, forget about that, and B, what's interesting to me politically, I, I, we talked a bit about this before we went on the air, um, in a historic sense and in a present political sense, this is a very odd situation. I mean, this, this disruption in the Middle East has brought what are clearly left-wing and revolutionary Kurdish movements, whether they're in Iraq or whether they're in Turkey or in Syria, but now we're talking about the Syrians, who are clearly revolutionaries and on the left, who are fighting to build a different kind of society with full equality for women and more, uh, and a cooperative communal society in terms of their economic view. I mean, that's their idea. But they are in this alliance in some ways with both Israel and the United States, given um, who their other enemies are. I mean, this is, so there's a complexity here that I think people need to understand and have it parsed out a bit. Yeah, it's extremely complicated. And it is, as you're saying, you know, this this region of Syria, uh, Rojava, has been not only a place, I mean, we, we hear about it in the conversation in the mainstream media here as a front line in the fight against ISIS. Well, that's true. But actually, also, it has been um, a kind of experiment in uh, an effort to have a freer society that's led by by uh, Kurdish forces. Uh, and so, and, and of course, ISIS threatens that kind of thing. And so the Kurds are really fighting for their lives in terms of uh, their, their fighting of ISIS. And it's worth actually talking about that as a way of parsing out what has been um, U.S. and Kurdish collaboration in the fight against ISIS, because part of the, the, the critique that uh, we're hearing from again people who are part who are in the Pentagon or the State Department or have been in the past, um, and in the mainstream media. Part of the critique of Trump's decision is there, it rests on this kind of rosy idea that the U.S. and the Kurds were involved in this fight together against ISIS, and that was great. And now we should just return to that. You know, why is Trump departing from that when in fact that was going so well? And while on one hand, again, I think the Kurds have been fighting for their lives. The United States operations against ISIS are really worth talking about. I mean, this this involved the aerial bombardment of the city of Raqqa, which Amnesty International and other organizations have documented mass civilian casualties uh, as well. So uh, first of all, I just think it's worth talking about what the U.S. has actually done when it comes to ISIS. And then when we're talking about the Kurds, they are, again, fighting for their lives. And in that context, they enter into these temporary alliances with forces like the United States, I think with, with some knowledge that the knowledge of history, which is that the U.S. has betrayed them before, as have so many forces. So when you so, so the question is, where does this go from here? Clearly, I mean, you, when you look at when you look at what's happened here in the United States between Donald Trump and even members of his own political party, as well as the Democrats. And you, I think, aptly described that in the beginning of our conversation. But it shows whether even if you, we don't agree with the policy formations of most of the centrist Democrats, the policy formations of the Republicans specifically as well, that, that it's clear that what's happening right now in the White House, that they have no, he has no understanding about what the, what's really going on and kind of fostering these policy moves that could, that could disrupt even the establishment points of view about right. what should be happening in the Middle East. 
Well, that, and that's why people like Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell are speaking up. I mean, notice what they tolerate from Trump. I mean, commenting on the Nazis in Charlottesville and saying that there's good people on that side. You know, I mean, any number of horrendous things that Trump has done. But they have repeatedly spoken up when Trump makes a move that they believe threatens U.S. power abroad. So that is what this is about. Um, and we don't know. I mean, th this this does, on one hand, uh, introduce a, a new round of chaos into a chaotic situation, which could threaten U.S. power as as the, the, the very question of what the direction of Syrian society uh, is, is very much up for grabs. And folks in the establishment want the U.S. to be a big player at that table to determine what Syria looks like. And they're concerned that uh, that that Trump is threatening that. But it's worth us, of course, having a, a completely different critique. And among other things, looking at the hypocrisy of the fact that the United States was working with and funding two allies, the Kurdish forces and Turkey, who are both in a, in, at bitter odds with each other. I mean, this, this is not like some huge surprise that mm -hmm. the United States, which has given more than $300 million in, in military aid to Turkey since over the course of the war on terror, it's not some shock that the Turkish government then uses that weaponry to attack the Kurds who it has an ongoing uh, war with. So, you know, I, I understand the anxiety in the halls of power in Washington about uh, this threatening U.S. power. But, but really, no matter how you slice it, the question of the Kurds' well-being and the question of human rights is absolutely not not what's guiding U.S. policy, and that really needs to be what's guiding our thinking. I mean, we should be concerned about uh, the fate of, of Kurds and other folks in the region. Today's episode is sponsored by Blinkist, the app that's here to help you read more books than you thought possible, or at least get the core insights out of them. Just as I curate and distill the most important points about political issues, Blinkist does that for thousands of nonfiction books, condensing them down into just 15 minutes for you to read or listen to as audiobooks. Our last episode was about the literally depressing nature of our economy, including the high number of people who think their work is completely useless. And if you don't have time to go right to the original source on that, maybe because you work too many hours, you can get more of the core points from David Graeber's book, Bullshit Jobs, on Blinkist. You can check out Blinkist for yourself for free. For a limited time, they have a special offer for our listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. And of course, you can cancel anytime. Blinkist.com slash best. And we start the show with the grim news that Donald Trump has announced the US will be removing their support for the Syrian Kurds in Rojava, giving the green light for Turkey to invade. Rojava, the name for the Kurdish region of northeastern Syria, has captured the imagination of the international left since the Kurds there gained de facto autonomy in 2012 amid the deadly chaos of the Syrian civil war. Since, 20, since 2012, Rojava has been organised as a secular and democratic community inspired by libertarian socialist ideology. It has also been the key force on the ground in Syria responsible for the defeat of ISIS. Uh, 
Throughout the Syrian civil war, the Kurds have been the most reliable ally of the United States, with the latter providing the air cover necessary to defeat Islamic State. And the US has have up to now provided Syrian Kurds with protection from Turkish invasion. The background there is that Recep Erdogan, Turkey's president, has throughout the Syrian civil war seen the empowerment of Kurds as the biggest geostrategic threat to Turkish interests, believing it will fuel the struggle for Kurdish autonomy and Kurdish self-determination within Turkish borders. But since Monday, that American support has now been withdrawn. Trump announced yesterday on Twitter that the US would no longer provide military cover for the Syrian Kurds. And the White House has confirmed with Erdogan that Turkey could, and this is in the, the words of the state, the White House press office has moved forward with its long planned operation into northern Syria. And we're going to move on to the immediate implications of that decision, uh, what that will say for people, people on the ground there. But I wanted to start with, I suppose, a bit of an introduction to the struggle in Rojava, especially mm. from, from your perspective. You've been someone who's been following this for a while now. A few years. Um, a few yeah. years, yeah. So I, I wonder if you could explain, I suppose, to the audience why you've been so interested in what's going on there and a bit of background to. I suppose, why Why do the left hmm. follow what's going on there? Well, I mean, this is one of the most exciting political experiments really since the anarchists in Spain in the 1930s. This is one of the few occasions when people have actually had a extensive uh, stretch of territory in which to try to see if libertarian socialist ideas can really be put into practice and actually work on the ground. Um, we've a lot of really startling success, to be honest. Um, I first found out about the revolution in Rojava when people there contacted me. Um, and, you know, at first, I think everyone reacted with a certain degree of incredulity. I mean, is this really true? Could this be happening? Could all of this been happening for all these years? And I'd never heard about it. But, um, you know, the more I learned, the more I was really struck by how profound and historical experiment it really was in what way so, so in what, what, well okay mean? i mean what we're talking about is really something that started within the pkk which is the guerrilla movement and it's a larger political movement within turkey uh which is originally a separate marxist leninist separatist movement um over time it has evolved and often this is attributed you know, almost exclusively to the personality of one person or the head of the pkk abdullah ocalan although in in fact, a lot of what happened within the PKK was the result of internal struggle, especially women's struggle within uh, the organization itself. Um, what Ojalan has to be his credit is that he was open to it, which mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, these sort of old patriarchal Marxist Leninist types are not. Um, and gradually over time, PKK transformed from relatively traditional national liberation struggle uh, to was pushing for a separate Kurdish state uh, to something really different. Um, a group whose major planks are eco social ecology, a lot of it inspired by Murray Bookchin. Um, Although they have their own version of democratic mm. confederalism that they've developed, uh, partly based on their own experience, partly on Kurdish traditions, and partly based on anarchist theory. Um, and um, so you have social ecology, direct democracy, and women's liberation being sort of primary uh, planks of a social struggle, which no longer actually desires a separate state at all. In fact, sees itself as in essential opposition to the very idea of a state. 
this is something which we haven't seen anything really like it happen in many years. I mean, there's the Zapatistas, this is the closest parallel one can think of, but even the Zapatistas don't really control a contiguous territory, whereas these people actually do. And there's been, I suppose, what could seem a, a somewhat bizarre or strange or unlikely alliance between this movement in Rojava, liberationary, mm-hmm. libertarian socialist, and the United States. So it was, yeah. it was the combination of those two forces that was capable of defeating ISIS since since 2014 it's, and it is protection from united states from the united states it's protected rojava from other enemies well turkey yeah. which is what we'll get on to in a moment um if i if you want me to do the background i can um oh, there's a pkk originally that had this um profound transformation what happened in syria was um pyd uh it was a political party with very similar ideology also follows um idea you know, writings of Ojalan and whatnot, um, they're not directly connected. Um, but during the Syrian revolution, essentially, the Syrian government pulled out of that area. Uh, it had been very strongly organized, the Kurdish parts of, of Syria. And um, negotiations ensued, and they basically talked the Syrian forces into just um, pulling out and leaving people there to handle their own affairs. Um I mean, they took everything when they left. I mean, down to the light bulbs, you know. I mean, all government offices were stripped of everything. So, Syrian government essentially, uh, and, and the sort of lackeys and flunkies and sort of magnates who, um, had privatized all the stuff and really, um, sort of crony capitalists all took off too. So they were an incredibly advantageous situation. All the government buildings had nothing in them, but they were empty. Um, and they suddenly had the situation where they were actually able to put the, things they'd been working out and discussing in theory for 20 years into effect. Um, now, at first, basically nobody noticed them. Uh, then there were several attacks from various jihadists, largely um, who seemed to have been funded, if not direct, absolutely directed by uh, the Turkish secret police. Uh, but gradually, um, the Kurdish region ended up in a conflict with ISIS. Um, ISIS, well, the origins of ISIS still remain obscure, uh, but um, it's very clear that uh, Turkish intelligence, along with various Gulf state intelligence, had a lot to do with putting them together. Uh, and they seem to have coordinated quite well um, with Turkish um, authorities of various kinds who are trading with Turkey. Um, for example, during the height of ISIS, the caliphate was openly trading oil with Turkey while the Kurdish region was under total embargo. They and couldn't Erdogan's even son-in-law was involved, wasn't yes, he? Yes, he, he was well, I believe indeed. was the minister <laughs> yeah. of energy or something. Yeah. Was like I mean, it was, it was pretty – it's one of these situations where everyone in the region knows what's going on, but you're not allowed to say it on TV outside mm. of, um, you know, in Europe or America. I mean – they constantly find high-ranking ISIS officers when they kill them, you know, with Turkish intelligence ID in their pockets. I mean, really blatant stuff like that. But still, somehow, everyone's like, how could you possibly suggest that a NATO ally is dealing with ISIS here? Um, we're all not supposed to talk about it. But um, so ISIS was just essentially acting as a Turkish proxy, was trying to um, take out the Kurdish 
region of North Syria to consolidate their power there, and especially to you know consolidate the border of Turkey, which is where they're getting their supplies. They went after Kobani, which is the flattest area and the easiest to attack, and it turned into this epic struggle in which essentially the U.S. was forced for various reasons to align themselves with people who are basically very close to a bunch of anarchists. Mm. It's a very weird historical situation, um, but... They were caught in the middle, and eventually an alliance of convenience followed. I always emphasize this was a military alliance and not a political alliance. Uh, for example, uh, the American government has never supported Rojava being part of the peace process in Syria. Um, they don't have a place at the table at all, even though these tiny little political parties basically represent nobody on the ground do. Russia actually supports Rojava being in the peace process, and America mm. doesn't. Most people don't know that. Um, there was a military alliance simply because they both have the same enemy. Um, and as a result, there have been certain... Uh, attachments that particularly personal attachments you know a lot of the americans who were down there ended up feeling well these guys are our friends are the only people who we could actually trust and 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 feel very strongly that they shouldn't be thrown to the wolves there's also a practical matter a lot of the american officers say well look if we ally with someone and then allow them to be completely wiped out the moment they're no longer convenient to us by our own allies well no one's ever going to ally with us again I have information here that apparently the uh, I believe the 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 Turkish operation is something like enduring peace uh, as they've begun their incursion in Rojava. Now, this is very, very clear what's going on here. The United States, by pulling out, is going to allow what happened in Afrin in 2018, when in that case the Kurds are primarily portrayed by Russian forces. Turkey will go in. Turkey will commit acts of ethnic cleansing and systemic killing, displace people's homes, and they will try to recreate the ethnic character of a Kurdish-dominated area. That's the reality. The other reality is that, and it goes without saying, that of course the Kurds are enormously effective at PR and no faction is perfect. But the reality is, is that what the Kurds have achieved in Rojava in terms of a democratic, confederalist, and socialist experiment is unparalleled in the region. They have had real gains in terms of cultural autonomy, broad-based rights, democratic decision-making, and so on. And they have fought extremely effectively against ISIS. And they are deserving of international left solidarity. I use this analogy all the time. And for some people, it will never stick. But this is really the distinction, in my view, towards distinctions around pragmatism, how we, dis how we dismantle empire, and also dealing with the realities of our world. I want Chinese and Russian presence in Latin America because I think Chinese and Russian presence in Latin America helps dissuade the United States from, as an example, a military invasion in Venezuela, even as we continually try to instigate a coup there. I think having other powers that at least can punch their weight internationally 
encroaching on somebody's regional hegemonic designs is helpful. In this case, you have an incredibly small group of U.S. advisors and U.S. presence that is, in fact, creating a protective core around an enormously successful social experiment, as well as the rights of a large group of people. Is it contradictory? Is it something that could exist into perpetuity? Are there enormous historical and political uh, tensions inside the relationship of U.S. imperial projection and local socialist experiment? Of course. Absolutely. And I would say, though, to some people who tweet at me about these things, the next time you're complaining about the political calculations that the Kurds make with regards to the United States, I mean, I, I would have to ask you, you know, I hope your caviar order gets there in time in between tweeting about it. These people are in a fight for their literal existential survival. And we have an opportunity to, in an enormously small way, be very clear about this. This is not invading Iraq to establish a Kurdish state or Kurdish autonomy in the north. This is not an active and ongoing, ongoing ground force effort. This is a small piece of the imperial presence that has as a spillover effect the protection of this group of people. Now, are there alternatives? Does there need to be regional diplomacy with Iran? How did the Kurds relate to the Assad government? Assad, of course, is guilty of numerous war crimes. Anybody would deny that as being totally dishonest. And in going back to the 60s and we can put this up on screen. Jean Bajlan and I have a piece in Jacobin today called The Annihilation of Rojava. We go back to the long efforts inside the Syrian government of trying to remake the ethnic character of this part of Syria. However, politics is constantly changing. There's a constant shift in alliances. Do the Kurds negotiate an agreement with Assad? Assad might not be thrilled to have even more Turkish incursion in Syria even as Turkey has supported jihadist elements fighting against Assad. What's the Russian role? What's the U.S. role? Is there an alternative in terms of diplomacy and survival for the Kurds? These are things we have to look at. But the fundamental reality is, is that an incredibly small presence was preventing ethnic cleansing and the destruction of a leftist experiment. Now, that's the way reality works. There's contradictions. There's inconsistencies. It's a very different example, but the Soviet Union absolutely had internal repression. I think anybody who would deny that as being delusional. They also had, overall, arguably a much better foreign policy from the perspective of supporting groups like the African National Congress than certainly the United States did. So there's a historical irony and contradiction that a U.S. empire is providing the security to stop an ethnic cleansing and to support a socialist experiment. And this isn't a projection in the future. This isn't a hegemonic project in the sense of this. This isn't Christopher Hitchens smuggling Trotskyite arguments to justify the mass murder and pillage of Iraq. This is as part of a huge mess of a multiplayer imperial game that involves the United States, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Russians, the Iranians, the Assad government, all of whom are guilty of war crimes. 
one element of saying this ongoing small presence can prevent a greater imperial abuse, which is precisely what Turkey is doing. Turkey is going into a neighboring country to savage and ethnically cleanse a group of people and create a quote-unquote peace corridor that connects with its ongoing and long-standing vicious oppression of the Kurds and Erdogan's shifting domestic political considerations as he more and more justifies his dictatorship, which we can call it that safely now, through a resurgence of really traditional Turkish nationalism. This is why the leaders of the Democratic HDP, Kurdish opposition, who, who presents an enormous promise in Middle Eastern politics, this is why they are political prisoners. This is why there was the mass murder in Afrin, and this is why there will be a huge incursion and mass murder in Rojava. And Donald Trump may well have done this to protect the Trump Tower in Istanbul. There's weapons deals at stake. And yes, is there some level of discomfort and disgust at having an overlap with Lindsey Graham or, or Mattis? Of course. But that can't determine all of your political calculations. And I would ask you, do you have some disgust with a backdoor deal with no planning, no strategy? I mean, a left president might come in and say, look, our goal is to get all military presence out of the Middle East. We can't be an empire anymore. What's the plan to protect you from the hegemonic imperial projections of Turkey? This is a conversation that happened over the phone. It's Trump. God knows what kind of disgusting deals are in play. Gone. We're going to go wage a ethnic cleansing. I don't think you should feel comfortable with that from a global solidarity perspective. And you can go to all the talking points, CIA, blah, 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 blah. But I've given you the reality. And there's hard things. It's, it's hard. Sometimes there's really true hard trade-offs. Uh, trade I think that the U.S. military presence and U.S. projection in the world is, is the most or one of the most greatest existential threats to humanity, structurally. And in this case... This specific configuration that can stop an ethnic cleansing and support a profoundly laudable experiment that everybody with any kind of liberatory politics should support. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, an online service that gives you unlimited access to your own fully licensed therapist via phone, chat, and video. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional in-person therapy. You don't have to go to an office and sit around in a waiting room, but you're getting the same professional help from fully accredited therapists. And there's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in your area. You can schedule meetings that fit 
your schedule. You can message your therapist at any time, and you'll get a timely response. And if you don't think the therapist they matched you with is a good fit, you can switch to someone new at any time at no extra cost. Go to their website and check out what BetterHelp users are saying about the service. New testimonials are posted daily. And they're giving Best of the Left listeners 10% off your first month of therapy when you go to betterhelp.com slash B-O-T-L. That's betterhelp.com slash B-O-T-L for 10% off. Two questions, I suppose. Why have the United States withdrawn their support now? And what will the consequences be? Well, I think that essentially Erdogan was pushing and pushing and pushing, and he knew that America is fairly inconstant. Um, eventually, you know, Trump has a tendency to listen to whoever the last person he talked on the phone with was. Um, there's been endless negotiation going on. I'm not privy to the details of what was going on with the negotiations between the North Syria Democratic Confederation and the Assad regime. They were trying desperately to make some kind of arrangement. Their ultimate political goals, as I say, are to create a model for how Syria could operate and resolve the war. Um, so it was entirely within their interest to do so. Um, and you have to bear in mind that this is a movement that no, to do this, to, to talk to the Syrian regime is really painful for them. When I was there, you know, whenever you mentioned the regime, they would be, no, absolutely no, we cannot bring those guys back. Um, I mean, half of the PYD's original leadership are either dead or still in prison in Assad. You know, no one knows. I mean, these guys have all had experience being tortured or brutalized. Uh, uh, fleeing in terror for the prospect of being so um they really don't like to have to do this on the other hand they do they have every intention of remaining within syria so i don't know what was going on with those negotiations what seems to have happened was that erdogan was demanding a some sort of zone i uh, called it a safe zone which is about as uh, hypocritical a term as you could possibly imagine considering it's essentially an ethnic cleansing zone uh, what he wanted was to take about five miles along the kilometer clear it out of its actual inhabitants and uh put in supplanted refugees that he no longer wanted to keep in turkey mm. um there was various negotiations going on. At least he wanted a buffer zone, uh, in a military buffer zone. And it seemed like, um, those negotiations had borne fruit. The Americans were guaranteeing some sort of joint patrol system in that area. Part of the, um, demands that Tur Turkey had made for that settlement was dismantling any defensive fortifications they had in the region uh, along the border, which they did. Uh, but then almost as soon as they dismantled the defensive fortifications, America said, oh, changing our mind, actually, we're pulling out and allowing Turkey to invade. Um, it seems that the reason why the Syrian regime went along with this is that Turkey assured them that they would basically clear out the SDF and then pull back to that five-kilometer zone and let the Syrian government have the rest of the territory. Whether they will really do that is very dubious. If you look at what they're doing in Afrin, they're basically annexing the territory there. They've set up schools to teach teach Turkish. They've ethnically cleansed most of the Kurdish Wait, inhabitants. They're teaching Turkish? They're teaching, mm. teaching in Turkish. In Syrian territory? Yes. Well, legally are. Syrian territory. Yeah. 
Yes. Um, there, That's and, crazy. And they've announced, are NATO members doing that? Are NATO members doing so you think, this? Think about the, 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 anal- the analog here is like Crimea and Ukraine, right? Oh, yes. It's so, it's so like, much more blatant than Crimea. That's crazy. Huh. Sort of like uh-huh. Russification of what's meant to be Ukrainian sovereign territory. Right. Well, so they exactly. already spoke Russia, Russian right. well, in no, Crimea. Uh, no, but I know. But the claim, the claim is you've got, um, you had various minorities, yeah. which like, you know, Tartars and so on, right? And right. they were going to be Russified, which basically, this right. is what you're talking about with our friend. Except the numbers are in reverse. Crimea was about 95% Russia, whereas Ifrin was about 95% Kurdish. And now it's no longer majority Kurdish. They've wow. actually driven out most and so of what, the And so what, what, so what it's now, they're being, there's being Turkish settlers going there, you Not saying. just Turkish. This is very interesting. And this is why they're being allowed to do this. What essentially they have done is they've driven out the indigenous population and they've brought in refugees. And essentially, a lot of them are Arabs from other parts of Syria, but they're basically the families of jihadis and hardcore Islamist militia people. Um, what they've essentially said, I don't, we don't know how explicitly, mm. but basically the message they've sent to Europe is, if you let us invade this territory, we'll take all those guys who you really don't want coming to Europe right. and we'll resettle them there. So this is why this is a NATO power. This is a NATO army. I mean, their tanks are supplied by Germany. Their planes are supplied by the U.S. and, and well, the It's the UK. second best funded army in NATO, right? It is. I it's the second largest and the second best funded. And the thing I always point out is it's not just, oh, we sold them this stuff. We, we, we can't, you know, be responsible for what they do of it. Modern weaponry needs to be maintained constantly. Mm. If you have a jet under combat conditions, you know, you need to have it checked and, and fixed up and replacement parts supplied pretty much every two or three days. Um, that's repair and maintenance is not being done by Turks. That's being done by Italians, French people, Germans, British people, Americans, contractors. There's, so, so this is a NATO army. This is essentially a, an imperialist army, which has a military advantage which was entirely due to European and American support. Because, you know, you have to bear in mind, the Turkish army is a mess. Half their good officers are still in jail since the coup. Mm. Um, they have very little command control. They can't really use them reliably. Whenever they whenever they actually have a fair fight with another force which is equally well-armed, they always lose. Uh, and they always will because they're fighting, they have very little combat experience and they're fighting guys who've got nothing but combat Can, can you explain something to me then? <laughs> yes. Obviously, uh, Turkey is a NATO army. A lot of its hardware is coming from NATO members. Yeah. So what's this relationship it has with Russia, whereby it buys pretty expensive kit yeah. from the Russians? Because well, it, it's, it's starting seem, to do so. It seems to have mm. a foot in both camps, so to speak. Well, they're, they're successfully playing the game that the, that, that the people in Rojava tried to do, yeah. of balancing each off against each other. But... Um, it turned out that the Kurdish enclave in Syria was not strategically important enough to be able to get away with it, whereas Turkey is. But that's really important that, that, um, their army is nothing without the high-tech toys. And the high-tech toys are directly supplied and maintained by Europe and America. So this is why it's, you know, insane to think of, you know, the U.S. human shield sitting in Syria as an imperialist venture, but the NATO army is about to come in and, like, actually commit ethnic cleansing on the local population, somehow aren't.
Let's talk about what we have seen over the the past week or so. What is the political context of Turkey's invasion of Syria and your understanding of the process that led to Turkey actually deciding, yes, we can do this? The modern Turkish state is explicitly built on the denial of the Kurdish identity and existence. And as a result, any form of Kurdish autonomy, not only in Turkey or anywhere in the region, they do not accept any form of local Kurdish autonomy anywhere. And they see it as a fundamental threat to the national security of the Turkish state. But this idea of dealing with internal dissent or uprising through forceful displacement of large numbers of people has a long history in, in Turkish and Ottoman history. And that's exactly what Turkey is trying to do now. You know, seeing the Syrian Kurds as linked to the Turkish Kurds, they now trying to totally depopulate these border areas from the Kurds through this idea of bringing in Arab Syrian refugees which live in Turkey. And through the bombing, they make uh, the Kurds flee and they have, close to 200,000 of them have already done. And subsequently, they will bring these 2.5 million or so Arab Syrian refugees putting in their place. And therefore, they create a buffer, if you like, an Arab buffer zone between the Syrian Kurds and the Turkish Kurds. So in a way, Erdogan, with this operation, trying to, if you like, hit um, three, four birds with one stone to to prevent the rise of uh, some sort of Kurdish autonomy in Syria, to uh, disarm and corner its uh, opposition domestically, and also to revive its uh, economy and also its, its political uh, base, uh, like regalvanize it through this anti-Kurdish war in, in Syria. What is the significance of how the United States handled this situation going back to before the Turks moved in, right up until now? Now, if you look at the discourse in media, there is basically, you get this picture that the military side in the United States are livid and unhappy with this. And yet State Department and others basically saying, yeah, well, this is a long-standing conflict. You know, they are connected to the PKK. They are basically repeating pretty much what the Turkish state says about its motives. Mm -hmm. What happened also in recent times in the Gulf with the attacks on the Saudi uh, oil installations and before that, when Iran downed the American drones, the regional actors, and not least Erdogan, are completely aware that the United States is no longer even trying to pretend that it, it it's going to maintain regional order in any concrete way. So I think regional states from Qatar, Saudis to Iran and Turkey, they all know that um, the United States is not going to militarily confront anybody really uh, in, in any way. And even if the United States has any plan, it's going to be done by proxy. So if, let's say, the United States still wants to undermine uh, Assad regime or have some sort of say on the post-war Syria, it's going to pursue that via Turkey as a NATO and trusted ally rather than through the Kurds. So imagine, I mean, if if, if Turkey successfully occupies this lands it, it intends to, Turkey will have a massive leverage on on any form of political process which is going to take place in Syria in, in coming months and years. And Turkey has, from the start, been opposed to the Ashara, said it provided weapon and money and arms to all sorts of Islamist jihadist groups against Assad. So, of course, it will use this new leverage in order to you know, shape or co-shape the Syrian future in a way it, it wants. And ultimately, uh, you know, to, to, to conclude this point, it's, it's I think Trump is worried about elections and ultimately its uh, its main aim to is to fulfill its 
a campaign promise about withdrawal of forces from the region. But what is really ironic is that the the number of American troops which were able to deter the catastrophe which is unfolding now in Syria were around 100, 100 or so. And yet Trump in his tweets depicts this as if, you know, uh, United States is withdrawing from Vietnam. I mean, it's, it's completely has nothing to do with the reality of the financial or military or human cost that uh, in, was involved for the United States. Well, then then you see who is stepping up right now and making a deal with the Kurds. It appears as though the Syrian government itself, Bashar al-Assad's forces, have now made some sort of an alliance with Kurdish forces. Now you're going to have the Syrian army potentially in a hot conflict with Turkish forces. Indeed. A bit of background is, is also useful here. The, the Syrian Kurds, as you might know, chose what they themselves described as a third way in the civil war. They said, we are not siding with either opposition because they are Islamist, reactionary and conservative and so on. In recent years, they tried to strike some sort of deal with Assad in terms of Assad regime recognizing some sort of autonomy, some sort of federal autonomy for the Kurds in Syria in return for Kurds basically joining uh, their military forces with Syrian regime against al-Qaeda remnants in Idlib or elsewhere in Syria. Now, Assad regime was emboldened by the successful intervention of Russia and Iran, and therefore was pursuing, if you like, a maximalist program with respect to the Kurds. So it was refusing to make any concession to the Kurds. So this deal did not take place. And on top of that, Americans were pushing and encouraging, and in fact, I would say even pressurizing the Kurds to not make a deal with Assad until recently. But now, of course, the Kurds in Syria are facing a real genocide taking place. And at the moment, aid agencies claim that up to 170,000 people have fled their homes uh, along the Turkish border. Hundreds of civilians have been killed and, and, and wounded. Within less than a week, a region, peaceful people doing their in a daily life, now it's been turned into war zone, women and children being killed with little medical supply. So all the warnings which people were making about the consequences of Turkish invasion has materialized, that we have a large humanitarian disaster happening. We have the re-rise of ISIS in the region, and uh, we have the strengthening of Russia, Syria, and Iran uh, politically and diplomatically in, in the region. It's one thing, and and even as I, um, you know, I think one should be able to hold these multiple views of Syria. So I'll restate them again. Uh, there was an organic uprising against the Saad. It was real. It was genuine. It was grassroots. There might have also been uh, later on a U.S. intelligence role. I, I think that it's, you know, <laughs> there isn't a contradiction in the complexity of world events between a genuine, uh, powerful grassroots movement against an authoritarian, corrupt regime like the Assad regime is, and then also, you know, the the, the power interests of a, a hegemon like the United States. Then we move forward. There, uh, the situation devolves into a civil war, and uh, Assad, it, along with his Russian partners in particular, and as well as Iranians, are committing. 
uh, serious atrocities on a daily basis. The chemical weapons debate is frankly even secondary to this. I mean, the big picture is that Assad engaged in mass killings and there's no way around uh, that reality, nor should there be. Now, at the same time, I and then of course ISIS arose in this context, and really several for several years now, we've already completely recalibrated the focus, um, at least in terms of our air war, uh, to ISIS. Now, should the United States have, going back to 2012, 2011, started doing another partnership with the Gulf states to fund jihadi groups and give them weapons? No, of course not. Has the U.S. Uh, air wars in Syria killed thousands of civilians? Yes, absolutely. There was a huge uptick even in 2015. And we oppose all of these actions uh, thoroughly and categorically. They should have never happened to begin with. Now, this piece of presence in Rojava is really quite small. It's very it's a it's a speck in an overall operation even if we're talking about quote-unquote withdrawal from syria so can we get specific about what we're really talking about here in terms of what is that u.s extension how small it is relative to the calamity that it's been preventing so um basically on the ground up until december uh, last year you had about two thousand uh u.s troops and that has been drawn down to 1,000. So there's approximately, I think there's still 1,000 U.S. troops left in Syria, mainly special forces, but also military advisors working with the uh, Syrian Kurds. Now, of course, uh, that kind of underplays the size of the U.S. intervention to a certain extent, because, of course, then, you know, that 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 military presence was supported by uh, the United States Air Force. So there's slightly more people involved. There's drones, you know, all these other sort of appendages of the military operation. But troops on the ground, you know, we're dealing with a thousand people. And, you know, at the end of the day, if we're talking about the dismantling the U.S. military presence over overseas, you know, there are better places than Syria where you could start, you know, and the United States, you know, under, a, a, under let's say, a, 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 a president who's sort of closer to our ideological preferences, you know, there could be a much more positive role played by the United States in providing a, a sustainable solution uh, to the issue. You know, uh, this could involve, uh, you know, one of the problems that the United States has had has that, is that Turkey has vetoed the Syrian Kurds' uh, participation in peace talks in Turkey, uh, in Syria. So it makes it very difficult. You know, people are going to have to compromise with the Assad regime. I don't advocate regime change, right. uh, but, uh, and, and the United, you know, we need the United States could have sort of got to a better position uh, a lot quicker on this. Well, so Tabo and Becky's point, I just want to say, I mean, played on the show at least a year ago with regard, he drew an analogy between Syria and his own de- dealing with the apartheid regime. I mean, and the, to keep a, to keep it short, I mean, sometimes, oftentimes you're going to need to negotiate and make deals with people who have blood on their hands. I mean, that's, that's just reality. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's reality. I mean, it's, you know, the Taliban were no saints. They were a pretty brutal organization. Right. But, you know, we after all this shenanigans in Afghanistan, it's turned, you know, it's it's necessary for the peace and stability of the country for some kind of accommodation to be brought together with um, 
uh, with the uh, with the um, uh, uh, Taliban. And you know, if you look at Iraq, the, the most disastrous thing that happened in Iraq uh, from you know from the occupation's perspective was you know trying to exclude the Baathists entirely from the process. Create, created a, a, a vacuum and a disaster in that country. So, you know, it's, it's you, you know, there are some people on the left, obviously, who just take a blanket. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a psychological security blanket where you can just be, I'm always opposed to war, uh, war and I'm always opposed to the U.S. under every single condition all the time. I'm not going to take any nuanced approaches to it. And that, you know, that creates an appearance of someone being principled or an appearance of someone, you know, having a consistent line. But in reality, you know, sadly, the world doesn't doesn't follow uh, those uh, those lines so easily. You know, it's like libertarianism. It's all sort of thought experiments. You know, it's it's easy to sit uh, sit in the West and say, well, you know, any U.S. drawdown is a good uh, good thing. But you know, the devil's in the detail. What's it gonna What's it gonna look like if the United, uh, you know, by the United States? Uh, abandoning the Kurds. Now, obviously, from the sort of neoconservative perspective, the, the, they're freaking out because it means that, you know, in the future, if they want to make alliances people with people on the ground, they're not going to be, uh, they're not going to be trusted. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, this is a pretty dark and sinister thing. I mean, uh, the SDF, in order to avert uh, a, a U.S. Uh, a Turkish invasion agreed to dismantle their border positions just a few weeks uh, a few weeks ago. So we, so the U.S. pressured the SDF, said, "Look, we'll protect you," and uh, the people on the ground said, "We'll ensure that uh, there's no Turkish invasion, and so, uh, so long as you dismantle these uh, border fortifications you've been building." And then suddenly Trump uh, uh, just reverses this policy and leaves the way open for a, um, a Turkish invasion and puts the SDF in an even weaker position. Yeah, and, and as I always say, and I'll keep hammering this point into the ground, I, I want Chinese and Russian presence in, as an example, Latin America as a check on the United States invading Venezuela, as an example. Um, uh, you know, so there, there's a practical dimension to how these hegemonic projects play out. I mean smaller and then you know a more serious question but i mean that it, it almost seems like i mean not besides the point but just obvious i mean what is the speculation around what erdogan you know lord trump with to do this what is the speculation i mean there's a there's a lot of different speculation that's taking place you know there was an article in newsweek for example which basically said that trump got rolled and you know we know, we've seen this before you know the saudis were able to impress uh trump and his entourage by just sticking his fa big face on a building right, right? Uh, Wilbur Ross was super excited uh, by getting a bushel of dates from his bodyguards. So, you know, what it could be, uh, you know, it could be basically uh, Erdogan, you know, Erdogan is a real, you know, Erdogan is what Trump wishes he was in right. a sense. Totally. Erdogan's a real, uh, is a real tough guy. Uh, he's a real kind of thuggish type of politician and he's a street politician. He's someone who's come up from the streets. He's not like a big softy from Queens who like, who nobody's ever said no to. Right. And, um, uh, so, you know, Erdogan probably threat, uh, you know, it's possible that Erdogan threatened and said, look, if you don't get your troops out the way, we're going to, you know, we're going to go in and you're going to have some casualties on your hands. Or it could be that, uh, Erdogan was like, you know, maybe something would happen to that, 
I mean, Trump doesn't own the Trump Tower in um, in, in Istanbul. It was a licensing agreement, but maybe the, there's uh, opportunity, business opportunities for Trump to enrich himself. In a series of rapid-fire changes over the last week, the United States military is now reportedly out of northeastern Syria. In the city of Manbij, Russian troops have moved in after Kurdish forces in Syria struck a deal with the Assad government on Monday. This followed what has become the new norm in announcing U.S. policy, Donald Trump's Twitter feed, where the president indicated that he was going to pull U.S. forces out of Syria and let others, quote, figure the situation out. Reports emerged that Turkey understood Trump to have given it a green light to invade part of Syria. These reports then sparked bipartisan outrage on Capitol Hill, drawing the particular ire of one of Donald Trump's most loyal sycophants, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. I think it's the worst decision of his presidency. It can be corrected. I hope it will. And it's going to affect our national security and his presidency if he allows it to continue. On Twitter, Trump laid down some of the most asinine rebuttals possible, including claiming that no one knows more about the Kurds than Donald Trump. And then there was this gem, and I'm quoting, If Turkey does anything that I, in my great and unmatched wisdom, consider to be off-limits, I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey. And then in parentheses, I've done before! Exclamation point. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo told PBS that Trump had not given the okay for Turkey to move in. The United States didn't give Turkey a green light. Despite what must have felt like whiplash to the Turkish government, President Erdogan moved forward with what immediately became a brutal invasion operation. The situation on the ground predictably deteriorated. There were reports that Turkey fired deliberately on known U.S. military positions captured ISIS fighters, escaped amid the chaos, and hundreds of civilians have been reported dead. Reports of mass atrocities and executions continue to emerge. Along a highway, Turkish-allied Syrian forces filmed themselves firing repeatedly at a body along a highway. Another video is believed to be evidence that the Syrian Kurdish political figure Hevran Khalaf was pulled from her car and shot in the head. She had been involved with negotiations with the U.S., French, and other governments. Now the Trump administration is saying it wants a ceasefire in Syria, and it has moved ramshackle to impose sanctions on Turkey. Here's Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. We have sanctioned three of the ministers, the Minister of Defense, the Minister of Interior, and the Minister of Energy. We have also sanctioned the Department of Defense and the Department, the Ministry of Energy. Set aside for a moment that in the micro sense, this is yet another case of Donald Trump saying something. And then when people start analyzing the consequences of what he has said or tweeted, he claims he didn't say it. And then he moves to punish the people he said it to. I say set that aside for this reason only. Just focusing on this TikTok misses a much deeper and important history that is necessary to understand in order to fully investigate what all of this means. You wouldn't get this from watching much of the news coverage on Syria right now. But the horrors that we see unfolding with Turkey's invasion are not simply the product of the insane whims 
of the insane man currently in power at the White House. United States policy for decades under both Democrats and Republicans has brought the world to this terrible moment of yet another mass slaughter, another campaign of war crimes from a U.S. ally. The belligerent response to 9-11, the CIA torture program, the black sites, the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, the expansion of drone strikes, the proxy wars, the destruction of Libya, the unquestioned support for Israel, the backing of monarchs and dictators and despots, all of these policies under Democrats and Republicans have created this situation in Syria. And it's downright despicable the way that the Kurdish people are discussed in the broader media coverage, particularly this line about how Trump has betrayed our loyal allies, the Kurds. Now, it is true that Kurdish forces in Iraq and Syria have fought as allies alongside U.S. forces, no doubt about that. But this narrative almost never includes the context that the U.S. has repeatedly, actively supported the brutal efforts by various powers to crush the Kurds, massacre them, keep them from achieving political and human rights. In many cases throughout history, the U.S. has not been a friend of the Kurds or Kurdish struggles for freedom. In fact, the U.S. has supported some of the most brutal and heinous crimes committed against the Kurds in modern times. The U.S. supported Saddam Hussein at the height of his brutality in the 1980s, when he was actively using chemical weapons against Kurdish people in northern Iraq. In the 1990s, Bill Clinton was pouring military aid on Turkey as it waged a brutal ethnic cleansing campaign against the Kurds. The truth is that the U.S. has used the Kurds throughout modern history as tools of convenience, disposable tools, foot soldiers one day, politically expedient bargaining chips the next. To simply portray this situation as something Trump just did is to somehow erase all history that preceded it, including the history of U.S. policy on Kurdish movements throughout modern history. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, laying out the basics of the story as of a week ago. The Real News discussed the politics of power that really steer U.S. foreign policy. Tisky Sauer, in two parts, spoke with David Graeber, yes, the same David Graeber who wrote Bullshit Jobs, coincidentally, uh, about the role of NATO in the Turkey-Kurdish conflict. The first clip we heard from The Michael Brooks Show was a commentary on why we need to have solidarity with Rojava. Intercepted discussed the political context of Turkey invading Syria. The Michael Brooks Show then discussed the reality of a compromised progressive politics aiming to scale down U.S. imperialism. And finally, we just heard a commentary from Jeremy Scahill on Intercepted about the historical role of the U.S. in this story. Members will hear a bit more on this topic, getting just a couple more perspectives on this very complicated and multi-layered issue. Plus, as I already mentioned earlier this week, I'll be talking about the new threat to this show coming from the Internet Capitalism Industrial Complex, so members should look forward to that. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, 
We'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. My name's Alice. I'm a speech-language pathologist in a public elementary school, and I just wanted to say that your recent segment that was kind of talking about professions with a like an empathy tax where you know you're doing good for other people therefore you should be willing to accept lower wages and poor working conditions resonated so much and just was so i felt really grateful to hear that from an outside source because that really feels like my lived experience right now um so thank you so much for the show and appreciate all that you do bye Heather from Texas. Thank you so much for this episode on, you know, the culture and economy that's making us depressed. Uh, I relate so much to this, as I'm sure tons of people do. From my own personal uh, perspective, from what I've experienced, you know, I've known a lot of people in my life, and it seems like the older generation that I've met, particularly like, you know, boomer-ish people, they almost pride themselves on the fact that they never take any time off or, you know, call in or anything like that. It's a huge thing of pride. They'll still say it like, oh, I've never taken a day off in 20 years. And it's, it's a huge thing of pride for them. And um, I know the younger generations, uh, I'm a millennial. And then um, I've, I've worked with a lot of people who are also like Gen Z. They're getting into the workforce now. They don't have as much problem calling in or saying that they need to take a day off or something like that. But... They are still just as guilty, if not more guilty, than the old generations of letting their employers or companies overwork them, uh, asking them to, to cover uh, shifts and working way too many days in a row, working long hours, and they feel like they just have to just deal with it. They feel like they have to just push through. Um, I was working with a girl who, she was 19, and this was just this summer, and she had worked several weeks in a row without a day off because they were short-staffed, which, you know, is not really anybody's fault. They were trying to get more people hired, and she was one of the best at, at her job, and she felt like she really had to step up for some reason, which is good to an extent, except she overworked herself to the point where she actually passed out and then hit her head. And then even after spending all night in the ER, still came to work in the morning, even though she was physically and mentally exhausted. So I find this topic very interesting because I know other countries have very different perspectives on this. You know, I know in Europe they're way more laid back. I know that there's some parts of Asia where they kind of, they're kind of similar to America and at least feeling like they have to work super, super hard for their job, even if the return really isn't worth it, and not really taking care of themselves. I don't really know about other parts of the world. Those are just the, the two examples that I've seen, and then, of course, America. So thank you so much. I love this. And, you know, this is something that I, I really try to talk to people about and let them know that it is okay to be selfish sometimes. You don't have to keep yourself for a company that could replace you. You 
Hello, Jay. This is Kwai calling from uh, Cary, North Carolina. I uh, haven't called in a while, but I've uh, been having some great shows lately. Just heard episode number 1310. Just wanted to make a, a couple comments about what uh, Reverend Ray, Roger Ray, I think his name is, uh, really enjoy his um, clips that you've uh, put on the show before, and I, I respect his opinion and his analysis, and I also respect the fact that he um, had a criticism about the woman who referred to herself as impasse. And I take his point, uh, the disagreement I would have, well, full disclosure, I am a person who thinks of himself as an empath in, in the sense that this woman was talking about, in the sense that I can and I have picked up on the feelings or the emotions that are coming from another person, and it's something that I deal with and I know others that deal with it as well. That being said, I am also a very logic-oriented person, evidence-based as well, and so I don't ever put that information out there as a means to make a decision. So the impression I got from listening to what Reverend was saying was that that person's lived experience, it was almost like he was dismissing their lived experience and as if he were accusing her of saying, because I am this way, you should listen to what I have to say about this topic. But in context of the reference that he was talking about, my understanding was that the episode was, or the clip was about how climate change and the pressures and the emotions, how people are being affected. And I, I thought of what she was saying was that has had a direct effect on her. And so from that context, I think it's legitimate. I don't recall her saying anything that uh, based on the fact that I'm an empath, you should take this course of action or anything like that. So I don't think it was a fair criticism. And also, I disagree with the whole concept of once someone says something that's unsubstantiatable externally, that uh, whatever else they say should be dismissed because obviously people are not completely all right or all wrong. If they were to suggest something based on being an empath that we should necessarily believe, you know, like a psychic or something like that, I would dismiss it. But I don't think she was making that kind of inference. So I uh, just wanted to mention that and uh, hope you have a great vacation when you come back. And uh, you keep being awesome, as they say. Take care, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, quick response to Alice, uh, the, the first voicemail we heard today. I love the phrase empathy tax. That is a really great and succinct way to describe the concept of uh, getting forcibly paid less for having a job that doesn't suck your soul. Um, really, really excellent. I, I'm pretty sure Alice came up with that. I don't think that was referenced in the show itself. So, uh, so good work on that. 
And then finally, just to wrap up on today's topic, uh, Turkey and the Kurds and everything, the latest news is that uh, there's a ceasefire that I believe was brokered primarily by the U.S. And we're patting ourselves on the back for, uh, you know, having created a giant problem and then sort of pausing it. Uh, so good, uh, good work to us. And, and the main goal of the ceasefire is to allow the Kurds to surrender and give up their land and uh, go about their lives uh, as if they had lost without having to actually uh, go through the genocide. So um, great, uh, great deal making there, uh, there, Donald. Um, of course, you know, for updated news, uh, look elsewhere uh, up to the minute updates is, is not my forte. But the, the more uh, amusing news actually came before the ceasefire. You may have heard when a little viral uh, Trump's letter to Erdogan, uh, president of Turkey, and and you know people were uh, having good fun with it as it uh, seemed rather amateurish, little uh, little schoolyardy, and so I'll share with you my new favorite way to consume news. You know, like obviously podcasts are the way I consume most of my news, but limericks are quickly rising in the ranks to be pretty much my number two source of news. You got podcasts, you got limericks, then you get like reading things and everything else. Uh, so in, um, in in response to Trump's letter, at limericking on Twitter, uh, praised him with this limerick. The president focused his aim, alert, at the top of his game. Each sentence he made hit par for third grade, and further, he signed his own name. And so with that, we will wrap up for the day and the week. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. 